Beloved in Christ, peace be with you. This is Catholic evangelist and Bible teacher Hector Molina welcoming you to this episode of my podcast series, A Walk in the Word, my weekly deep dive Bible study that explores and unpacks the riches of the Sunday Mass readings. Well, my dear friends, we continue our journey, our pilgrimage through this glorious Easter season. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And for our purposes today, we're going to be exploring the readings for the solemnity of the ascension of our Lord. And before we get started, I think it's important for me to state from the outset that I have opted to focus in on these particular readings for this solemnity rather than explore the readings for the seventh Sunday of Easter, precisely because the vast majority of dioceses throughout the U.S., have opted to transfer this solemnity from Ascension Thursday to the following Sunday. And since I believe, I would venture to guess that the vast majority of you who are listening to this podcast or who are viewing this podcast via our YouTube channel, let me just stop there for a second. For those of you who are viewing this, don't forget to hit that like button. And what's more, if you have yet to subscribe, hit that big red subscribe button and the notification bell. That way YouTube can notify you the moment we upload a brand new podcast episode. I would venture to guess that the vast majority of you who are listening and viewing this podcast live in precisely those dioceses that have opted to transfer the solemnity from Ascension Thursday to the following Sunday. And so this is precisely why I'm going to explore the readings for the solemnity. Now, I'm not going to get into the reasons behind this transfer, the rationale that the bishops have used to justify this change. I will say this on a personal note that I have never agreed with that. And I think the decision to transfer this feast has had negative and deleterious consequences. And what do I mean by that? That's a pretty strong statement, Hector. Why would you say that? Well, And I don't want to go off on a major tangent here, but I I do think it's worthwhile considering the fact that Catholics, in particular Christians, I think in general, have a very impoverished understanding of what the Ascension is, and furthermore, what it means, (laughs) its significance. When we think about the Paschal Mystery, what do we think about? We think about the Passion, Death, and Resurrection of our Lord. But we fail to understand that the ascension and glorification of our Lord is part of this very Paschal mystery, the central mystery of our faith. We tend to reduce the Paschal mystery to the events that transpire between Holy Thursday and Easter Sunday. That's the Paschal mystery. But we forget that the ascension of our Lord is an essential component and element of that Paschal mystery regarding the passion, death, resurrection, and ascension, glorification of our Lord. That is the Paschal mystery. And I think we as Christians, generally speaking, that we tend to view the ascension kind of as an afterthought. You know, the, the real meat and potatoes is, is it's the resurrection. 
That's the climactic moment of salvation history. And there's no denying that the resurrection of our Lord is just that. But it cannot be separated from the ascension, which was and is essential. Most people, I think, regard the ascension as Jesus basically being taken up into heaven. You know, he's exiting the stage, so to speak. And nothing more. And nothing could be further from the truth. <laughs> and so I think that transferring this solemnity, which historically has been celebrated precisely 40 days after the resurrection, and you're going to see this in the readings that we're going to consider for our meditation today, that there's such a strong biblical precedent for it. There was a reason why we celebrated the ascension precisely 40 days after Easter Sunday, which falls on a Thursday to commemorate, to honor, to reflect upon, and to celebrate this great mystery of our faith, which, again, for most Christians, I would venture to say, again, this is my opinion, is only an afterthought. It doesn't have any real significance or impact. And I would submit to you, and I hope by the end of our study today that you will agree with me, that we cannot do without the ascension, that the ascension was absolutely critical and essential in the economy of salvation. And so I think the bishop's decision has really been one of a deleterious consequences. Unintended for sure, but nevertheless, I think it has served to further erode the faith of the people of God, to, to continue to... Um, to water down and to compromise our understanding and appreciation for this great feast day. I think growing up, I don't know about you, I'm a cradle Catholic and, and a former altar server. I just remember really viewing the Ascension as something very special because this took place not on a Sunday when we typically went to mass, but this was something that was set apart. It was on a Thursday. It was precisely 40 days after Easter, following the biblical precedent. And I remember us having to go out of our way to go to Mass in the evening. You know, after school, we would freshen up and get ready to go to Mass because it was a holy day of obligation. You couldn't miss it. And it had the same importance and was on par with, obviously, our Sunday obligation to worship and to celebrate the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. So I just remember that being impressed upon me from a very early age and of me really seeing the Ascension as something very, very special, not an afterthought, not as a superfluous uh, event that really was of no significant consequence. But ever since the transfer I think that that has eroded, I think, people's, A, understanding of the ascension, and B, eroded the appreciation that Christians and Catholics in particular ought to have for this great mystery of our faith. I mean, this is part of the articles of, of, of the creed. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And because of its paramount importance, I just think that this decision has undermined that and as a result has further eroded the understanding of the faithful 
as well as the appreciation of the faithful for this great feast. And so, anyway, those are just a few thoughts regarding Ascension Thursday. I do hope and pray that the bishops will reconsider and will return to the ancient and traditional practice of celebrating the Ascension on Ascension Thursday. I think that would serve to further strengthen the faith and reinforce the importance of this great feast. Now, with that said, (laughs) why don't we prepare to enter into what I hope and pray will be a very rich study for you that if maybe if you're one of those that really doesn't understand fully the impact and the significance of the ascension that hopefully by the end of this study by the end of our time together that you will have a renewed understanding and a deepened appreciation for this particular mystery of our faith and this particular feast of the church that is my hope and my prayer so before we get started as i've said for every one of our episodes the best way to follow along is to grab your Bible. That way you can read along with us as we consider these passages. I'll be reading from the Revised Standard Version Catholic Edition. I will also be quoting significantly from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. The Catechism has an excellent section regarding the ascension of our Lord. And so if you have a copy of the Catechism, I encourage you to grab that as well as a highlighter as I'm going to be giving you some wonderfully rich passages concerning the ascension. So with that said, and without further ado, why don't we take a walk in the Word? And I would invite you, my brothers and sisters, to join with me in invoking the blessing of Almighty God that this study, that our time together might be a truly enriching one as we pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Turn with me, my friends, to the Gospel according to St. Mark. We are in the 16th chapter, verses 15 through 20. And what I would like to do is I would like to cite just a mere portion of the preceding verse, verse 14, which is not in the lectionary. It's not part of the reading, but I want to include this particular detail because I think that it is quite pertinent to what we're going to be exploring, namely the bodily ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. It says in verse 14, Afterward, Jesus appeared to the eleven themselves as they sat at table. Remember that. Then we go on. Verse 15, And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to the whole creation. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went forth and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by the signs that attended it. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. 
Well, my dear friends, what I would like to do, which is a little bit different from what we normally do, typically I will read the gospel and then offer some commentary and some reflection upon the reading before exploring the other readings. But what I would like to do today, because we're going to be exploring this mystery of the ascension of our Lord, is I'd like to follow up with the first reading for this solemnity, which is taken from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Since in this particular passage, Luke describes the details surrounding the ascension of our Lord. And so we read, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commandment through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them he presented himself alive after his passion by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days, and speaking of the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he charged them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but before many days you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said this, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, we've considered Mark's account of the ascension as well as Luke's account here in the Acts of the Apostles. And there are a number of details furnished in these passages that I would certainly like to explore with you. But before we do that, I want to provide you with a few citations from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. As I mentioned, the Catechism has an excellent section regarding the ascension of our Lord. And so we begin with paragraph 659. In paragraph 659, we read, So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. That's taken from Mark chapter 16, verse 19, from the gospel for this Sunday. Christ's body, the catechism goes on to state, was glorified at the moment of his resurrection, as proved by the new and supernatural properties it subsequently and permanently enjoys. Let me stop there for a second. What does that mean? Well, again, it's pointing out the fact that 
the body of our Lord was glorified at the moment of his resurrection. And how we know this is because when you look at the post-resurrection appearances, it's clear that Jesus' body has been glorified. It's in a glorified state. It points out here in the Catechism, for those of you who are watching, there are a couple of citations from Scripture. It points out Luke chapter 24, which is precisely the passage concerning the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Remember that Jesus appeared to them. He walked alongside of them, spoke with them, and they did not recognize him. These were two disciples and followers of Jesus, and they didn't recognize him as they walked along discussing the events that transpired in Jerusalem. And they invited Jesus to sup with them, to share a meal and to break bread with them. And Jesus accepted their invitation, and they sat and they shared a meal together. And in the context of this meal, Jesus takes bread, he blesses it, he breaks it, and in the breaking of the bread, the scripture says he vanished from their midst. He disappeared. Clearly, he is the resurrected Lord with a resurrected body, which, as the Catechism states here, has new and supernatural properties, including those of impassibility and subtlety to veil itself, the ability to enter into spaces, pass through doors, and to vanish. See, Jesus, in his glorified state, is is no longer bound, in essence, as he was in his earthly body before his crucifixion, death, and resurrection. Now, in this glorified state, he enjoys new supernatural properties, certain powers. In John chapter 20, verse 19, is another citation. Jesus appears to the disciples behind locked doors. He appears. He doesn't knock on the door and ask to gain entrance. No. He passes through these fortified doors and appears in their midst. And so, yes, this is evidence that Jesus' body has been glorified. But then the Catechism goes on to state, but during the 40 days when he eats and drinks familiarly with his disciples and teaches them about the kingdom, his glory remains veiled under the appearance of ordinary humanity. So remember, he spent 40 days with his disciples, veiling his glory and appearing to them in an ordinary human visage, okay? And there are a number of citations here for those of you who are watching the broadcast pertinent to this. But then the Catechism concludes by stating, Jesus' final apparition ends with the irreversible entry of his humanity into divine glory. And that's what the ascension is. The irreversible, I'm going to repeat this, the irreversible entry of his humanity into divine glory, symbolized by the cloud and by heaven, where he is seated from that time forward at God's right hand, close quote. Now, what I intend to do 
as part of our time together is I want to focus on various aspects of the ascension. And here in this final portion of this paragraph of the catechism, we see here that this irreversible entry of Jesus's sacred humanity into divine glory is symbolized by what? By the cloud. Why a cloud? And by heaven. Well, what do we mean by heaven? Where he is seated. Why is he seated? And why is he seated at the right hand of God the Father? And so these details are quite significant. And that's what I want to explore with you for the better part of our time together. Really to get get to the heart of the meaning and the significance of this great mystery of the ascension. Now, before we do that, I want to give you a few more citations. In paragraph 660 of the Catechism, we read, The veiled character of the glory of the risen one during this time namely the time, the 40-day period, is intimated in his mysterious words to Mary Magdalene. Let me stop there. This is referring to Jesus' post-resurrection appearance to Mary Magdalene. If you remember, when he appears to Mary, she is reaching out to, to embrace him. More than that, she's, she's seeking to cling to him. And he says, do not cling to me for And it quotes here, I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And so this is Jesus after the resurrection. He immediately makes reference to the ascension, that he is in the process of ascending. See, you can't separate the ascension from the resurrection. It is part and parcel with what we call the Paschal Mystery. And Jesus immediately after his resurrection makes it clear to Mary Magdalene that the story is not over. It's not complete. His journey is not complete. But he must return. He must ascend to the right hand of the Father. There is great significance in this. And so this is what the Catechism is highlighting here. This paragraph concludes, this indicates a difference in manifestation between the glory of the risen Christ and that of the Christ exalted to the Father's right hand, a transition marked by the historical and transcendent event of the ascension. Close quote. That is very important. We're looking at the difference. The difference between the manifestation of Christ risen from the dead and the manifestation of Christ ascended in glory to the right hand of the Father. And what I hope to accomplish as we consider these passages is to really mind the riches of these scriptures so that by the end of our study together, we'll have a deepened appreciation for the significance of the ascension, which again, as I said earlier, seems to be kind of an afterthought. It's something that is superfluous and really not as significant. It's not as a big deal as as the resurrection is. I think that's the predominant mindset of most Christians, that that we, we put so much emphasis on the resurrection to the exclusion of the ascension. 
when they are part and parcel of this great mystery that we call the Paschal Mystery. We can't separate the resurrection from the ascension, nor can we separate the ascension from the resurrection. And I hope by the end of this, you'll see why, you'll understand and appreciate why this event is so sacrosanct. It's so important. In paragraph 661, we read, This final stage stays closely linked to the first. Now again, this is speaking of the ascension of our Lord. This final stage stays closely linked to the first, that is, to his descent from heaven in the incarnation. Now let me be clear, let me stop here for a second. When the Catechism states this, it is not suggesting that Jesus traveled geographically from heaven to earth in the incarnation. It's not like he came from heaven through outer space into our atmosphere and touched down. Nor is this suggesting that the ascension is like Jesus going up like rocket man into the heavens, into outer space, and into you know the eternal kingdom of heaven. No, that is not what the catechism is asserting. But it is speaking of the descent. Remember that St. Paul in Philippians, he writes about how Jesus condescended. He humbled himself and took on the form of a slave. It uses the, the Greek term kenosis the self-emptying of Jesus. He humbles himself, taking on the form of a man. And here it's linking the first stage, namely the incarnation, with the final stage, which is the ascension. It is linking and contrasting the descent of Jesus or the condescension of Jesus or the humbling of Jesus, who condescended, taking on the form of a human being, and the ascension and glorification of the Lord. So we're talking about Jesus humbling himself in the incarnation, and then being glorified and exalted in the ascension. You see the movement here. This is what the Catechism is referring to, the descent and the ascent. So this final stage stays closely linked to the first, that is, to his descent from heaven in the incarnation. Only the one who came from the Father can return to the Father, Christ Jesus. No one has ascended into heaven but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man left to its own natural powers, humanity does not have access to the Father's house, to God's life and happiness. Only Christ can open to man such access that we, his members, might have confidence that we too shall go where he, our head and our source, has preceded us. This is a very powerful quote. Let me go back. It says here at the bottom of this particular slide, left to its own natural powers, humanity, we do not have access to the Father's house, to God's life and happiness, apart from Christ. It is through Jesus. It says only Christ can open to man such access that we, his members, we are members of the mystical body of Christ by virtue of our baptism. And we're called to remain in Christ. We just went through 
studying and examining Jesus' discourse on the vine and the branches. Remain in me, abide in me, and I in you. That if we remain and abide in Christ, we will bear much fruit. We the members of this mystical body of Christ, we who remain in the vine, might have, the Catechism states, confidence that we too shall go where he, our head, and our source has preceded us. This is so powerful, my friends. You see, apart from Christ, he tells us, apart from me, you can do nothing. It is through him, in him, with him. Jesus goes and enters. He goes beyond the veil into the Holy of Holies, into the royal presence of God, into the presence of his Father, and enters into the kingdom where he is seated at the right hand of God the Father, where he reigns. And he precedes us and intercedes on our behalf in order that we might participate in that glory, that we also might be raised up on the last day, that our souls would be reunited with our bodies, that our bodies would be glorified and taken up into heaven with Jesus where we will reign with him. It is only through Christ. Now, with that said, if you can't tell, I get excited when I unpack these teachings of the church. This is so inspiring, so profound, so meaningful. As I mentioned, I want to explore some of the details that these passages furnish. First one I want to tackle, we've been through this before, I'll be very brief, is why 40 days? 40 days between the resurrection of our Lord on Easter Sunday and Ascension Thursday. Why 40? Well, you should know, and those of you who've been with me, we've studied this numerous times. In particular, every Lent, if you go back to the first Sunday of Lent and the story, the gospel concerning the temptation of our Lord in the desert, he spent 40 days and 40 nights in the desert in preparation for his public ministry. It was a time of testing, a time of preparation for a transition, for a new beginning. And in Genesis chapter 7, verse 4, we read, For in seven days I will send rain upon the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. This harkens back to Noah and the flood. 40 days and 40 nights, a time of purification for a new beginning. In Exodus chapter 34, verse 28, we read, And he, Moses, was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote upon the tables or the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Close quote. And so we see that Moses is on the mountain of the Lord where he is praying and fasting, as Jesus did, as I mentioned a moment ago, before his public ministry, before delivering the gospel, the good news. Moses, likewise, in preparation for delivering the Ten Commandments, spends 40 days and 40 nights praying and fasting and preparing to deliver the word of the Lord. And in the same way, Jesus spends these 40 days with his disciples preparing them, a time of preparation 
for them to then what? Receive the Holy Spirit and thus begin their mission of communicating the gospel, of going into the whole world and preaching the gospel to the whole of creation, as we read in today's gospel, and as we read also in the Acts of the Apostles. He says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And these 40 days are a prelude, a time of preparation for this great mission, what we call the Great Commission. In Deuteronomy 8, verse 2, we read, And you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So we see in this particular passage a reference to the 40 years that the Israelites spent in the desert, in this particular pilgrimage towards the promised land. And in essence, we have during these 40 days a pilgrimage of sorts as the Lord is preparing and testing and edifying his disciples as they prepare to begin their mission throughout the world. Another question, why a cloud? We're told that Jesus was taken up in a cloud into heaven. What is the significance? Now, clearly, if you think about the scriptures, we know that Jesus, when he was transfigured, they went up on a mountain, believed to be Mount Tabor, which is the traditional site associated with the transfiguration, that the mountain was enveloped, in essence, in a cloud, a glory cloud, what's known as the Shekinah cloud. And if you go to the Old Testament, Moses, likewise, when he ascended Mount Sinai, the mountain of the Lord, it was enveloped in this glory cloud that was synonymous with the presence of God. So clouds have always been connected in the scriptures with the presence of God. What's more, there are a few allusions in Scripture to the fact that the Lord rides on the clouds, that the clouds are the Lord's chariot. In fact, I'll give you a couple of examples here. In Psalm 104, verses 1 through 4, we read, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, thou art very great. Thou art clothed with honor and majesty, who coverest thyself with light as with a garment who has stretched out the heavens like a tent, who hast laid the beams of thy chambers on the waters, who makest the clouds thy chariot. So you see here in Psalm 104, in verse 3, a reference to the Lord who makest the clouds thy chariot, makes the clouds his chariot. It goes on, who ridest on the wings of the wind, who makest the winds thy messengers, fire and flame thy ministers. Close quote. And so the clouds are considered the Lord's chariot. In Isaiah 19, verse 1, another passage we read an oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt, and the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. So the Lord is riding on a swift cloud. Also, we find in the prophet Daniel a reference to the Son of Man coming on the clouds in glory. So, 
Jesus being taken up in a cloud, it, it's it's perfectly attuned to what we find in the Old Testament, this connection between the Lord and the clouds, the clouds being the Lord's chariot. And now the Lord's chariot is taking him into heaven. He is ascending on a cloud into heavenly glory. Another question, what does into heaven mean? What do we mean? He ascended into heaven. Well, I wanted to point out to you that the, the true biblical understanding, there, there are three heavens that we find described in the sacred scriptures. That may surprise you, but I think you'll understand by the end of it. There are three distinct heavens that are described in the sacred scriptures. We read in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, you'll be familiar with this, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth. Now let's look at the first heaven. What is the first heaven? The first heaven is could be considered the atmosphere, the atmosphere around the earth, the sky, in essence. In describing the rain that brought on the flood of Noah's time, we read in Genesis chapter 7, verses 11 through 12. The windows of heaven were opened. And rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. So we're talking about the windows of heaven, meaning the sky, the atmosphere around the earth. That's the first heaven. But then there's a second. The second heaven is commonly referred to nowadays as outer space. We're talking about the sun, the moon, and the stars, the constellations. This is considered the second heaven. I'll give you a couple of examples. In Exodus 32, 13, we read, Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, thy servants, to whom thou didst swear by thine own self, and didst say to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven. That's referring to the second heaven, which is, again, the sun, the moon, the stars, what we consider outer space. In Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6, Thou art the Lord, thou alone. Thou hast made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host. That's referring to the heavenly host. It's referring to the sun, the moon, and the stars. So that's the second heaven. There's a third heaven. The third heaven refers to the eternal paradise where God himself dwells. Second Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, St. Paul writes, I must boast. There is nothing to be gained by it, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. There it is, a reference to the third heaven where God himself dwells. He goes on, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Close quote. So Paul here is referring to the third heaven. Now, this is a a mysterious passage. 
uh, perhaps it's it's left you kind of scratching your head. Who's he referring to? This man who 14 years ago had this this experience of the third heaven, was taken to the third heaven, whether in body or soul. Paul doesn't know. Only God knows. Well, Paul is speaking of himself. He's being humble here. He's not trying to brag or to to take credit for this revelation, but he was transported to the third heaven. Now, he states, whether in in the body or out of the body, I do not know, but nevertheless, he had this mystical experience of the third heaven that he's giving witness to here. He's describing paradise. So you have the first heaven, the atmosphere, the second heaven, the cosmos, the constellations, the sun, the moon, the stars, outer space, and then you have the third heaven, which is the realm of the Lord, the kingdom of heaven. All right? So when it says that Jesus was taken up into heaven, it means that he was taken into the third heaven. He ascended into the third heaven, which is the dwelling place of God, paradise. I'll give you another passage, Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. After this, I looked, and lo, in heaven an open door. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up hither, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and lo, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. So this is a vision given to John the Evangelist, who is the author of the book of Revelation, he was given a vision of heaven where he saw a throne and one seated on the throne. So this is the third heaven, my friends. This is where Jesus ascended to. Another question, what does seated at the right hand mean? What does it mean, seated and at the right hand of the Father? What does this mean? Now understand that obviously seated, he's seated on a throne. Jesus ascends to the heavenly kingdom as king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And in essence, we see in the ascension a royal coronation, in essence, a royal enthronement because he ascends to heaven where he's enthroned as king. He is the triumphant king who returns from the battle triumphant. He has defeated sin and death. And in his triumph, he ascends the throne of heaven where he has dominion and power and glory. This is the significance of the ascension of our Lord. And so he sits on the throne, which is a symbol of power, royal power, authority, and dominion. When a king sits on the throne he sits triumphantly. It is repose from a triumphant battle. And Christ is victorious. And he ascends to the right hand of the Father in complete and utter victory. Triumphant over his enemies. And he sits on the throne where he will reign for all eternity. We see in Psalm 110, which is a messianic psalm, it's very interesting. It says, and this is a Psalm of David, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. The right hand was always designated as the seat of power and authority. And the son is seated at the right hand of the father. 
a place of authority, mm-hmm. dominion, and power. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your foes. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day you lead your host upon the holy mountains. From the womb of the morning like dew, your youth will come to you. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Now, I want to center in on verses 4 and 5. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. Not only does our Lord ascend to the right hand of God the Father as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, but also as our heavenly high priest. In the order of Melchizedek, it says, The Lord is sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father, not only as king, but as priest. And so we have, in essence, a royal and a priestly enthronement in heaven where Jesus will continue to intercede on our behalf. He will continue to exercise his holy priesthood because Jesus, in essence, has ascended and has gone beyond the veil into the Holy of Holies into the very presence of the Father, into the heavenly kingdom. Like the priests of old, the high priest in particular, one day a year on the Feast of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, he would be allowed to pass through the veil into the Holy of Holies. Only one day on the Feast of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, would he be allowed to go beyond the veil into the Holy of Holies. God's dwelling place where he would offer sacrifice. Well, Jesus is the true heavenly high priest who pierces, who goes beyond the veil into the Holy of Holies, the heavenly Holy of Holies, where he presents before the Father a perfect sacrifice of his own pierced body, He presents to the Father a perpetual offering, a perfect sacrifice. Jesus is both high priest and he's also victim because he offers himself, his very body, as a sacrifice for the life of the world. I'm reminded of what John in the book of Revelation in chapter 5 he describes this vision. He, He beholds a lamb standing as though it were slain. Well, he's describing Jesus, who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. A lamb standing as though he were slain because he bears the marks of the crucifixion. Remember, I, I've told you numerous times that, that Jesus ascends into heaven bearing the trophies of his victory over sin and death. 
the marks of his crucifixion on his hands, his feet, and his side. These are the trophies that Jesus, the Son, presents before the Father. The only man-made thing in heaven, the great saints and fathers of the church teach us, the only man-made thing in heaven are the marks on the hands, the feet, and the side of Christ, the wounds of his passion, which he continues to bear as trophies of his cosmic victory. Jesus is both priest and victim. And he continues to intercede on our behalf. And the catechism bears this out. When you look, for example, at paragraph 663, we read, Henceforth Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. By the Father's right hand, we understand the glory and honor of divinity, where he who exists as Son of God, before all ages, indeed as God, one in being with the Father, is seated bodily after he became incarnate and his flesh was glorified. In paragraph 664, we read, being seated at the Father's right hand signifies the inauguration of the Messiah's kingdom, the fulfillment of the prophet Daniel's vision concerning the Son of Man. Quote, to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. After this event, the apostles became witnesses of the kingdom that will have no end. Close quote. Powerful. In paragraph 662, we read, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. The lifting up of Jesus on the cross signifies and announces his lifting up by his ascension into heaven, and indeed begins it. Jesus Christ, the one priest of the new and eternal covenant, entered not into a sanctuary made by human hands, and this comes from Hebrews 9.24, entered not into a sanctuary made by human hands. This is a reference to the tabernacle or the temple made by human hands. The, the high priest, as I mentioned before, would enter into this sanctuary, this temple made by hands, and would go beyond the veil once a year into the Holy of Holies. It says here, but Jesus, the one priest of the new and eternal covenant, entered not into a sanctuary made by human hands, but into heaven itself, the true holy of holies, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Close quote. Which means that he, he lives to make intercession for us. He continues his high priestly ministry as he prays for us, interceding for us, and offering before the Father as our holy heavenly high priest a perfect sacrifice of himself on Calvary. This paragraph concludes, There 
Christ permanently exercises his priesthood, for he, quote, always lives to make intercession for those who draw near to God through him, Hebrews 7.25. As high priest of the good things to come, he is the center and the principal actor of the liturgy that honors the Father in heaven. Close quote. So I, what I want to underscore for you is the cosmic dimension of the ascension of our Lord, who ascends, who goes beyond the veil into the heavenly holy of holies as our heavenly high priest, and who presents before the Father a perfect sacrifice, the sacrifice of himself. He laid down his life on the cross for our salvation, to redeem us. And our participation in the liturgy is a participation in the cosmic liturgy because as we behold the priest confecting the sacrament and offering up the sacrifice of the Eucharist, invisibly in heaven, Jesus, our holy high priest, because remember the priest is is acting in persona Christi, which is Latin for in the person of Christ. He represents Christ who in the heavenly realm he is offering to the Father his very self, the sacrifice of Calvary. And this is the essence of the cosmic liturgy that is taking place every time we go to Mass on Sunday. Heaven and earth unite. And this is what the Catechism is describing here. That Jesus is the center and the principal actor of the liturgy that honors the Father in heaven. The liturgy in which you and I participate as we receive the glorified flesh of our Lord and his precious blood. Powerful. Truly powerful. Now there's such more there's so much more, <laughs> as I usually say, that can be said. But moving along, we consider the responsorial psalm, which again is key to this theme of the ascension. And the response is God mounts his throne to shouts of joy, a blare of trumpets for the Lord. Because we're talking about the divine enthronement of the priest king. We read, clap your hands, all people, shout to the Lord with loud songs of joy, for the Lord Most High is terrible, a great king over all the earth. Verse 5, God has gone up with a shout. That's the Revised Standard Version translation. In the NAB, the New American Bible, which is what our lectionary is based upon, it says God mounts his throne amid shouts of joy. And let's just fast forward to verse 8. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. So again, this psalm was chosen because it was a psalm of enthronement. As Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father where he is enthroned as King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and Heavenly High Priest. And finally, the second reading from Ephesians chapter 1 verses 17 through 23, we read, Brothers and sisters, may the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, 
having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know, and let me stop here, because really this is my prayer for you, for me, for us. This is really the goal of this particular study. And so I want you to take this passage to heart. Having the eyes of our hearts, I'll say, enlightened, that we may know what is the hope to which he has called us. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Paul goes on, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power in us who believe according to the working of his great might, which he accomplished in Christ when he raised him from the dead and made him sit at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he has put all things under his feet and has made him head over all things for the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Close quote. Powerful passage. And a wonderful note to end on, my friends, because one of the things I want to impress upon you before taking my leave is to underscore, to stress how this celebration of the ascension of our Lord how this reminds us of something so, so important. See, we're living in a wicked age. We're living in an age of, of, of such strife and discord. We're living in an age of such perversion, such sinfulness, and such strife. And to be reminded of the fact that Jesus ascended into heaven, the king has been enthroned. And as St. Paul reminds us, it says, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. Jesus has put all things under his feet. You see, the ascension reminds us that Jesus ascended into heaven, is enthroned at the right hand of the Father, and that he has conquered, that he has all power, authority, and dominion. And I don't know about you, but in this age of chaos and confusion, the world is seemingly being torn asunder, torn apart. We stand to be reminded, and this is, I think, what Ascension Thursday now, for many of us, Ascension Sunday does is it reminds us of the fact that God is on the throne, my brothers and sisters. No matter what you and I may be going through, no matter the, the strife, the difficulties, the vicissitudes, the trials, the tribulations, no matter the fact that this world might be on fire and being torn asunder, Jesus remains seated on the throne. Amen? Jesus rules and he reigns and he has put everything under his feet. And in those moments when we may be tempted to, to discouragement, 
where we may, be, we may be tempted to despair. I don't know about you, but there are moments like that where it becomes overwhelming and that we must be reminded of the fact that God is sovereign, that God is omnipotent, that Jesus has conquered and come what may, Jesus remains on the throne. And he one day and one day soon will return on the clouds in glory. He will ascend in his chariot and come to rescue us and to call us home. My brothers and sisters, do not lose hope. Do not, do not be discouraged. Do not be dismayed. Do not be distressed. Do not lose hope. Our hope needs to be placed in Jesus Christ, who is sovereign. He rules and he reigns. There are times when we may not feel that that is the case, but this is why our Lord requires faith, that we must trust in him. And in the midst of this wicked age and these calamitous times in which we find ourselves living, we must give witness to that. We must give evidence to that that our hearts belong to Jesus, that our souls and our minds belong to Jesus. We must put on the mind of Christ and that we must, in essence, ascend along with him. First and foremost, in the here and now, we must ascend in our thinking. We must ascend in mind, in heart, and in soul, we must elevate our minds and our hearts to Him. And that's the essence of the sacred liturgy, where we gather together to do precisely that. And in the sacred liturgy, we're caught up with Jesus. We're caught up with the saints and the communion of saints, and we're lifted up from the muck and the mire of this world, and we're elevated. We ascend with Him every time we celebrate the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass and we participate, we receive a foretaste of the heavenly kingdom. We receive a foretaste of the glory to come. He feeds us with his body, blood, soul, and divinity. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has life in him and I will raise him up on the last day. My brothers and sisters, the ascension is not an afterthought. The ascension is not just some ancillary detail that really is not essential in the economy of salvation. I hope and pray that our time together has served to illuminate, to elucidate your understanding of the importance of how sacrosanct, how essential the ascension of our Lord is in the economy of salvation and how Jesus precedes us. He precedes us. His sacred humanity was taken into the Holy of Holies in anticipation of our own resurrection. Our own resurrection where our bodies will be reunited with our souls and our bodies will be glorified. And what's more, we will be taken up with Jesus into the kingdom where we will reign with him for all eternity where every tear shall be wiped away 
that there will be no more war, no more suffering, no more pain, but only eternal joy. My brothers and sisters, as always, I pray in the words of St. Paul in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, that this word, that the word of God may richly dwell in you. Until next time, my brothers and sisters, God love you.